Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. Excited to be here with you. My name is Corey, one of the pastors on staff. Get to be your teaching pastor uh, this morning, and I'm excited to to do that. It's quite the text. Um, If you've been uh, following along with us in the book of Hebrews, you know this last couple, three or four weeks has been pretty intense. Uh, You kind of have to know a little bit about the Old Testament and uh, specifically then the law, the temple, the priest, to be able to make sense of uh, of this. And so. Uh, I'm excited to get into it. I've probably written a, uh, three or four different sermons and different introductions. I have my notes. I preached a fifth sermon that was different last gathering, and so today this might make number six. This might be the sixth total sermon that I have written and, and delivered over this text here in chapter eight. And so I have uh, come up with a bunch of different introductions, and I think I finally landed on one that kind of sums up everything that is happening in this chapter. You guys want to try it out and see how it goes, okay? And if it doesn't go well, then where's always next week? And so um, here's the way that I think about uh, chapter 8, because chapter 8 is, is, is fixed intentionally, obviously, not to be funny, but between 7 and, and 9. And so there's a reality there. <laughs> so I was like, yep, that makes sense. Got it. I'm with you so far, Pastor. Good job. But it, it is, it's intentionally there because 7 sets up, here's how Jesus is the better high priest. 8 reiterates that. And then eight continues with, well, not only that, but he's the better temple. And then nine is like, hey, here's how he's the better temple. And so it's, it's kind of this, uh, trans, not a transition, but kind of a transitional chapter that I have been given to preach this morning. So here's the way that I think about it. I don't know about you, uh, but I'm ready for vacation in July. Anybody else have a vacation plan maybe this summer coming in the fall? There you go. And so you're kind of, you're looking forward to that. You're anticipating that. And if you're anything like us, like we'll book that vacay and we'll pay for it, we'll go online, we'll make the payment or whatever, put it on the calendar, and then that kind of sets in like a bit of a process for us where we're like, we get bored, we go back and look at the vacation site, or we'll maybe get on Instagram and look and see what other people did while they were in this location or the pictures that they posted, or maybe we'll get on and we'll read like some Yelp reviews or some whatever it's called, TripAdvisor reviews or whatever. We'll kind of get a feel for the place, or we'll go on and we'll look at like the menu. Anyone else just kind of do a little research on your place, right? And you, you, in so doing, it begins to build up this anticipation for you. And so you begin to like further long for and look forward to this moment of vacation, right? Especially if you get to go without your kids. You're like, hallelujah, right? There is a Jesus. And so there's, this is a foreshadowing of a greater place. And so you're looking forward to that. You're longing for that, that place, perhaps. Now, let's say that I came to you and I tried to set up an argument. And I was like, well, why don't you just settle for the photos on Instagram? You'd be like, bro, because they fit on a seven-inch screen. Like, that ain't the real thing. Like, well, why do you need to eat the food? Why can't you just read it off the menu and just kind of visualize the, what it would be like? And you'd be like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And so it, it just would not, it wouldn't work, right? And so in that, those, those pictures, those menus, the review that you might read, those are all just kind of a shadow of what's to come, right? And so you don't settle for the shadow because you know the real thing 
is coming. But the shadows build in you an anticipation for the real thing. You guys tracking with all that? That's what's happening here in chapter 8. Right? He's, the author of Hebrews is writing to the Jews, and he's saying, hey, everything that you experienced, all of the law, all of the covenants that were there, the temple, and all that took place in the temple, the priesthood, even Melchizedek that we heard about, and we're going to talk about more in a minute, everything that you have been experiencing for millennia, by the way. Like, we're not talking about four months of anticipation. We're talking about, like, years. I mean, hundreds of years of anticipation. All that you have in been experiencing is just a shadow to lead to you a greater anticipation for, one, for when the real thing comes. And then in chapter 8, he says, oh, the real thing has come, right? And it's so much more than vacation, so much more than a priest, so much more than a temple, so much more than a promise. Everything you have ever anticipated and longed for is finally here. The text in chapter 8, to be clear, it should not be this hard to preach. Uh, but the reality is, the church has kind of lost her way whenever it comes to reading the Bible. Uh, really, the story that takes place today is very simplistic, and we're going to get into that too, but it would have went like this. Hey, you remember the priest that came from the Levites? Yeah, absolutely. It was part of the law that we have to follow. Great. Jesus is not that. Remember, Melchizedek kind of came out of nowhere, no genealogy. We don't know his parents. We don't know where he came from. And he came proclaiming to be a priest and a king. Remember that cat? Remember Mel? We're homies. Remember Mel? They'd be like, yeah, I totally remember Mel. That's what Jesus is like. And they'd be like, oh, tell me about the temple. That's the extent of chapter 8. I should be able to just say that. I'm like, all right, guys, let's take communion. But we've got to unpack all of this. And so as you're sitting here and you find yourself going, man, I don't know that word. I don't understand that. There might be a reality where you don't know that. It might be in indicative that you've not spent enough time in the word. So there's your convicting word for the day. And so as you enter into this, we enter in this together. Jeff said, hey, they might know, not know the Bible, but you need to preach that thing like you do. <laughs> and I said, yes, sir. And so that's what I'm going to do. So there's a big idea that I have for you. And the big idea is this. The shadow has become a reality. Everything that they experience has become real. The shadow has become a reality. If you're a note taker, if you're viewing online, thanks for tuning in. The shadow has become reality. Then three points for you. A shadow of a priest, a shadow of a temple, and a shadow of a promise. A shadow of a priest, a shadow of a temple, and a shadow of a promise. Again, these are words we're not used to using in our culture, but they are very biblical and worth spending some time in. A shadow of a priest, a shadow of a temple, a shadow of a promise. Are you ready? Say ready. Let's hit it. A shadow of a priest is what we're going to start with. Beginning in uh, Hebrews chapter 8. Verse 1 it says, now the point in what we're saying is this. And so we can pause here for just a second. The point in what we're saying is this. He's saying, now I can finally get to the point of book. He's saying all that to say, to sum it up, this is the, keep in mind, this is the 16th week we've been in the book of Hebrews together. This marks week 16, I believe. And he's finally saying, hey, let me make the point that I've been trying to make. So if you wonder, why does Corey go a little long-winded sometime? It's because this was modeled for us in the book, okay? And so 16 weeks, he's been laying out. He's been doing what? Building out this anticipation for us. Like everything that we've seen in the book of Hebrews is also a shadow for us, right? To create in us a longing for Jesus, to create in us a longing for the kingdom of God. And so he's been building this anticipation for 16 weeks, by the way. And so he says, verse one, now the point in what we're saying is this. Here it is. We have such a high priest. 
Everything that you long for, we have him. And his name is Jesus. One who is doing what? Seated. Somebody say seated. seated. It's very important. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, literally in the holy and holy, in the new tent, the new tabernacle. The tent himself has entered into the tent, if I may, right? The king has entered into the kingdom, one could say. And so a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So he mentions both the priest and the tent. For this point, we'll stick with just the, the aspects of the priesthood that are important here. And so the author is saying, we can, I can finally get to what I've been getting to here. And that's it. There is a new high priest. He is the perfect high priest. The author has laid out all of these other shadows that point to someone greater. The author is kind of making this, this reality for us even, but specifically for them, that there is a high priest who has come. And so to get you caught up, I have to revisit what Pastor David preached last week from chapter 7. And so in that previous chapter, the author laid out the reality that this new priest did not come from what's called the Levitical priesthood. And so there's 12 different tribes. One of those tribes is the tribe of Levite, the the Levite tribe. And the Levites were like, that's who would be on stage up here, if I may put it like that. They were the worship leaders. Uh, They wrote the songs for Israel. They distributed those songs for Israel. They also administered the sacrifices, the priests would come in and they would mediate between God and man and they would offer sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. They ran the temple and oversaw the temple. The priest, is all you need to know, the priest mediated. They stood between God and man. The Levites were the family that kind of birthed out priests. That was their job. Hey, breed the priest. Breed the worship team, which is kind of weird. Don't look into it too far, but that's exactly what they were called to do. All right, and so pay attention. Pay close attention because it says it is hard to follow. Uh, the author is saying in the previous chapter, there is a better priest. There is a better priest that did not come from the Levites. There's a better priest that came before the Levites. As a matter of fact, there is a better priest, a priest that, that, I, that he's trying to reveal in Christ. There's a priest that came before the law was even given. There was a priest that came before priests were even instituted to the whole country of Israel. There is a priest, a priest even, that cannot be tracked by genealogy. And so if you've ever read your Old Testament, the book of Genesis lays out a great deal of genealogy. Turns out you shouldn't just skim through it because if you have a genealogy in the Bible, it means you matter and you're important. And Melchizedek, the priest that he's mentioning, did not have a genealogy. If you read the Old Testament, it'll read something like so-and-so begot so-and-so and then they died. And so-and-so begot so-and-so and then they died. And so-and-so begot so-and-so and then they died. And we see this big list of genealogy and we're like, let's just skip down to the next chapter heading. Right? But it actually gave them significance. Now, in our country, if it was like he had a couple kids and croaked, that'd be a really poor obituary, right? But in their context, it matters because it reveals. You can run the line, the lineage back, and know exactly where they came from. Melchizedek, who's mentioned in the previous chapter, had no genealogy. He was literally, seemingly, a nobody. And yet, this is the, who the author decides to kind of paint the picture of how, what Christ is like. And so... As we continue, just kind of thinking about the past chapter, sorry, the previous chapter, the author who's talking about Melchizedek that's being quoted in chapter 7. Again, it's wordy. Chapter 7 quotes King David writing the Psalms. And he says of Melchizedek that there is someone who's better 
that is coming, that there is a Messiah who is coming, and that Messiah will continue to live on after the order of Melchizedek. Now, not only was Melchizedek a priest, church, this is important, but he was also a king. The king of Salem is what the scripture said. The Old Testament law was not, they wouldn't even allow that to happen, but he preexisted the law. You still tracking with me? He preexisted the Levites. He preexisted what Moses had called them to do. This Melchizedek did. And so we call him Mel for short because we're boys. And so Mel has no beginning and Mel has no end. And Mel just kind of shows up and he has no genealogy. He looks as if he's not even important, insignificant even. Mel is called though that king of Israel and the priest of the most high God. He is the first and the only priest king that we know about in the Old Testament. And all of that matters. It's all very, very important because what the author is saying to these Jews that are asking questions, he's saying, hey, you know the Levites and all that. And they would have known. Like they would have understood exactly what he was referencing. He's going, hey, Jesus ain't like that. Do you remember Melchizedek, the one you all don't have a framework for? That's what he's like. And the point that he's making is that he is not just a high priest, but rather all of those things that they were given were simply shadows to point to the greater high priest, who's not only a high priest, but he's a high priestly king. Because it says in that he has a better better, uh, ministry that he is administering for us. And not only is he doing that, but he's doing it from the throne. And so verses 1 and 2, again, let me read to you one more time. Kelly, put that up, verse 1 and 2 again. Now, the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated. Listen to me. Priests don't sit down. I'm going to read you a scripture in a moment to prove that. Priests do not take a seat. They administer sacrifices. This is what they do. But he's saying, no, there is a priest. A, we have such a high priest, one who is seated. He's sitting on the throne, right? And so this is important because of this. Here's the sub point for you. If you could put it up for me, Miss Kelly. Priests represent the people to God, and kings represent God to the people. I was talking with a woman in my missional community this week. She said, can you put your sub points up on the screen? I said, I don't usually do those. And then God was like, you're going to this week. I was like, well, here we go. So in, on the screen for you, priests represent the people to God. Kings represent God to the people. Keep it up there for them for a minute. You can leave it up while I'm talking. This is important to note because the author is saying we have a priest, high priest, king. And so if a priest represents people to the God and king represents God to the people, the only one who's come like that is Melchizedek. And now the author is saying there's another one who's come just like that. And his name is Jesus. And if you know a little bit of theology, you know Jesus is both fully God and also fully what? Man, there she is. She's awake this morning. Do you see the symbolism? Do you see that what's happening there in the text? The fancy theological word for that is called a typology. Melchizedek is a type of Christ that points to the Christ. Why does he spend so much time? Why is it worth spending so much time talking about this? Oh, because it builds our anticipation, church. Everything that you could ever experience in this world is simply a shadow of the one who is better. Look at me, everything that you look to in your life to try to mediate for you, make you feel good about yourself, everything that, that you want in your life to kind of stand and give a defense for you, to be a king for you, to represent you is only going to be something that foreshadows a better priest and a better king, and his name is Jesus. The point that he's making here, just practical application for us, is this. Have you ever, do you ever just wanted someone to fight for you? 
just like give you a voice, give you purpose, like look at you and like just literally see you? Have you ever just felt the need to be seen? <laughs> of course we have, yeah? This is what he does. This is the covenant that Jesus mediates for us as our high priestly king in that he is our high priest. He is constantly mediating for us. We get to read about that here in just a moment. Like in the midst of our sin, there is a Jesus who stands between us and God the Father. And he says, I know that they're ridden with sin right now, but you don't see them anymore. You see me. I've given my life for them. My death has become their death. My resurrection has become their resurrection. You see only me in the midst of their sin. My gosh, if we believe that, church, what would our lives look like? And at the same time, like, we should be able to, we should, like, what should stir in us in that, in hearing that, is we should go, man, how is that possible? How is it possible that on my worst day, you see me as if I'm Christ on his best day? And you go, well, he's also a king. He's the one who institutes the covenant. He makes the rules. And whenever you fail to uphold the covenant, he sent his son to die for you, to mediate for you in that moment, so that you could be brought to new life and be seen in perfection. Does that make sense? Okay, what is the point? The point is that we have a high priest. What is the point, pastor? The point is we have a high king. We have both of these. He does both. Verse 3, continuing then. Verse 3 says this, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. So the priest, they, they're always standing. They're never sitting. They're constantly administering some sort of offering, some sort of sacrifice for the atonement of sin. And so whenever it says in there that Jesus is this high priest who has sat down, oh, their ears would have perked. They'd be like, tell me more about this. How is that possible? It's not a part of our law. And he would go, that's because he's from outside of your law. He's completely different than anything that you've ever seen. He's more wild than anything you could ever imagine. And then we continue, if we, to further push this out, Hebrews chapter 10, which is two chapters later, says this, and every high priest, how many of them? Every one of them, right? And every priest, not high priest, and every priest does what? They're standing or sitting. They're standing. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, he's saying. Right? They're just up there kind of monotonous, right? Bull, dead. <laughs> Bird, you read Leviticus, let's kill that thing, smash it on the altar. Like, this is their whole life. And he's saying everything that they did was for, it wasn't for nothing in totality, but it was for nothing as it pertains to salvation, that they stood there, every high priest stands daily to surface, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, right? Which, sorry, verse 12, but when Christ, okay, come on, but when Christ had offered for all time, what, a bunch of different sacrifices or one? A single sacrifice for sins. What does he do? He sets down, come on, somebody. He literally sets down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool under his feet. So like not only is all of this driven, written, given to us to build in us this anticipation, but do you know that there's also a high priestly king that waits in anticipation for all of his enemies to become a footstool for him? Like he's longing for the same day and the same reality that we're longing for. And so it does not stop. There's this anticipation for him. And he says, waiting from that time until his enemy should become a footstool for his feet. Oh my gosh, break out the lazy boy. <laughs> and prop his feet up, isn't he? Man, 
for by a single offering, not multiple, for one, by a single offering, he, that's Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified or those who are being made more and more into the image of Jesus. There is, there are no more covenants coming. This is it. This is it. It is fine. It is finished, he says. So why is it significant that Jesus has sat down? Because he's the priest that mediates for men, and at the same time, he's the king that reigns for God. We need to understand the dual nature of Christ there. And he sits down. Why would he sit down? How, how does he get to sit down? Because Jesus has done everything he can do as a Messiah. He's still the Messiah. Don't hear me say something I'm not. What I am saying is he can do no more. He's lived the perfect life. He's died the most horrific death. He's resurrected to new life. He's interceding for you right now. He sent you the power of the Holy Spirit. It is finished. So what does he do? He kicks his feet up for a little while. He says, oh, I can't wait for them to come to me. I can't wait for them to come gather to me. He has come as the perfect high priest, holy, spotless, perfect, in full glory and forevermore. That is who he is as your High priest. He continues in verse 4. He says, and this is awesome. Now, if he, if, if he were, if Jesus were on earth, look, uh, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a what? Shadow. It took us 16 weeks for you to get why we called the series this. Yeah? They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Short story here. The author is saying, to this, he's talking to a Jewish people or congregation or audience, keep in mind, writing to them. He's saying, by the way, oh, by the way, if all there is is a Levitical priesthood for you, well, this Jesus can't be that. To which they would go, yeah, I know, right? He's saying, yeah, that, because that would be against the law. That would be to abolish the law. That would be to change the law. So he can't be that. What does that mean? So he has to. This is why he gives him Melchizedek, and he says, he ain't like that. He's like this, no genealogy, no beginning, no end. He's a high priest. He's a high king. We don't know where he come from. We don't know where he's going exactly. We can't make sense of all of it, but here's what we do know. We needed someone from outside of the system to step into the system and bring redemption, right? If the law were sufficient to save you, if the law was sufficient to give you salvation, if the priesthood was sufficient to redeem you, there would be no need for another, he said. He says, but this priest this high priestly king, oh, he existed far before the law was given. He existed far before the Levitical priesthood was given. Think about that when you think about a priest. Think about that when you think about a king. Do you understand the argument now? Hopefully it's working. All that then to build this anticipation, right? The law is good. The Old Testament is good. You need to know the Old Testament, but you also need to know that when you're reading through the law and the Mosaic law, the first five books of the Bible, it is not satisfactory for salvation. It is insufficient to save you. It is sufficient to paint a picture of the glory of God. It is sufficient to paint a picture of our depravity. As human beings, revealing we cannot, in fact, save ourselves. It's sufficient, then, to create in you an anticipation, right? Because you look at that law, and you go, man, that's Instagram photos right there. That's just a list. That's just a, I can't taste that. That's just a list on a menu, right? That's just a menu list. It's, just, it's there to build in you this anticipation for what we have, in fact, been invited into, church. If you do not know the Old Testament, and I don't mean, you need, I don't mean that you need to be an Old Testament scholar or professor. I mean, just well acquainted with it, listen to me, you will miss out on the radical grace you've been given in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Or you're not even in the shadows anymore. You need the shadows to point you to the sun. That's what they're meant to do. The second point then is this, a shadow of a temple. A shadow of a temple. So before I read this, for clarity's sake, uh, we're going to stick to looking at, at Jesus being our temple, being the representative of the temple. But I feel like I have to do my job and also say, when you read about the tent and the temple, it is 100% a foreshadowing to Jesus Christ, absolutely. But it's also simultaneously a foreshadowing to the kingdom of God. And so just for the sake of clarity, it is both. We're going to focus on Jesus. Does that make sense? Next week, I'll teach you more about the temple being an actual temple that points to the kingdom. We're together on that? Okay, I kind of broke the fourth wall for you there. but Okay, you have to read this with both in mind. We'll focus on Christ. Continuing in verse 5. For when Moses was about to erect the tent or the temple, the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. That's Mount Sinai. Like Moses did not just receive the Ten Commandments on some stone and break those things. He received the law, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. He received all that, all the dimensions of the temple, the tent, everything that it was needed. You can read all about that on your own. So he says, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown on the mountain. Verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises, unending promises. Verse 7, for if the first covenant, if the Mosaic law of the Old Testament, if the old covenant had been faultless, there would, be, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. What he's saying is if the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, if it would have been, um, if it would have worked, if it would have been adequate for the sake of salvation, there would have been no need. But the only way that one can come into the presence of God is by coming into the temple. The only way one can come into the presence of God is by a priest. But it's said earlier in Hebrews that the priests there had to make sacrifices for themselves because they themselves were sinners. So he said, all of that was insufficient in regards to salvation, very sufficient to reveal the glory of God, very sufficient to reveal the inadequacies of humanity, insufficient for salvation. You still tracking with me? And so he says, so Jesus has this, this better ministry. Jesus comes as the better temple, and he comes as the better priest. And so if you think about the temple, because he's, he's holding both kind of character traits uh, in thought here for us. The temple had a little place in it called the Holy of Holies. And that's where the, the priest would go into to ha- administer sacrifices for people that had been in sin, is what the text says. And so they would go in, they'd take their bull, their bird, their lamb, or whatever it may be, and they would administer the sacrifice in the Holy of Holies. And what you need to know about the Holy of Holies, and those of you that are type A, oh man, you're going to love this. Everything had a place, you know, and every place had its thing, you know what I'm saying? And so they had lamps in there, had to be lit a certain way, right? Just like, just picture in your living room right now. You're like, oh yes, right on the island, I need that lit right now. They had every lamp had to be lit a certain way. Gold had to be placed in a certain way. Bronze had to be placed in a certain way. Altar had to be in a certain way. I could never live in your house. I have four kids, and they would destroy your house, a.k.a. your temple. And we just need a little chaos in the Johnson house, you know, to feel safe and at home. And so Exodus 26 tells all about that. I mean, all of this instruction that had to be given. Short story long is this. The point is this. All of that, every single 
inch, every millimeter of the temple that was designed was designed to point them to Jesus. Like every time they had to come together and set that thing up, set up the temple. I mean, it would take forever to set it up. Every person had a job. Every object had a place. There was a whole liturgy by which they set that thing up. And in so doing, the goal there was that it would begin to build in them an anticipation. Like there's got to be someone better coming. There's got to be a better temple coming. There's got to be a place where we can meet the Lord. And think about it. For millennia, this is what they're setting up. And God does it, and he allows it to happen to build in them the anticipation for the better high priest and for the better temple. And so as you kind of think about that, I think the the best way to sum up what's happening here in this portion of the text is to deliver it to you uh, kind of like a conversation. And so if you could picture with me, uh, there's someone that's Jewish standing in front of you, in front of me, in front of this author here, and they are. And you're a, a professing Christian. You have professed faith in Jesus, you have a good understanding of the gospel, very gospel uh, central. This is kind of what it would look like. It would be like this. They would come, rightfully so, and they would ask, uh, where's your temple for worship? And at 21st century Americans, we'd be like, well, where's your temple for worship? Because you need one too. Uh, but if we're trying to win them to Jesus, we probably don't respond like that, do we? <laughs> you would say this, Jesus is the temple. Well, how does that make sense? Well, Jesus mediates for us. Jesus is the better temple. He's our temple. He's my temple. He can be your temple. God himself put on flesh. He's no longer hidden behind a curtain. He's no longer veiled from humanity. He no longer exists just for the Jews, but Jesus came incarnate. He came in the flesh like he made himself known as if that were not enough, like he sent us the Holy Spirit, and he says, we're now the temple. And so now God's temple is not found just in Jerusalem. No, by by all means, no. Rather, the temple can be found all around the globe. The gospel is good news for everyone. And you can repent and you can believe in Jesus. Well, that sounds good. That sounds intriguing. Where are your priests? What about your priest? And so you would say, no, we don't need priests. Jesus is our priest. Jesus mediates for us in that he's the one that gives us access To Yahweh, he doesn't retire at 50 like your priest according to your law. He doesn't make sacrifices for his own sins like your priests do according to your law. He's holy and perfect and awesome and he mediates for us. He is the way by which we come into the presence of God the Father. And they say, well, what do you do about, where where do you make sacrifices? And you say, I'm so glad you asked because I can't finish that thought without this thought right here. The way we get to come into the presence of God. It's because Jesus is the holy of holies. He's completely fulfilled every aspect of your temple. He mediates for us and that his body was torn apart so the temple veil could be torn apart so that anyone could be given access to Jesus. He's literally our sacrifice. It says in your Bible and the Bible you can read as a Jew that God was not satisfied with the blood of bulls and the blood of rams. There has to be a better sacrifice and he is the better sacrifice. Do you see this conversation playing out? And they would say, oh, well, what do you do about sacrifices when you continue to sin? And you say, I already said it once, (laughs) but I'll say it again. Jesus is our sacrifice. And in the midst of our sin, he has done one sacrifice once and for all, and there's no need to make another. He was the perfect, and the Father found him delightful and right, and he atones, and there's no longer a day of atonement where you have to wait a whole other year to be atoned. Oh, but there's seconds of atonement and minutes of atonement and hours of atonement because his atonement was sufficient forevermore. And so you don't have to wait, just hoping that the priest kind of got it right. 
hoping the Johnsons didn't bring their twitchy old, dirty old lamb in there, but brought a good one, you know, like, that's what they would do. Like, man, I just, I hope, just kind of white knuckling it through life, just hoping that the Day of Atonement did all that it was supposed to do. Do you kind of see that makes sense for you? And so that's how that would play out. Jesus mediates by standing between us and God, one, as a high priest, secondly, as a king. And you can continue, right? His cross is the altar. His blood brought and bought the uh, atonement for us in every single way. What is the point? The point after 16 weeks is that everything that you long for can be found in and through Christ Jesus. Let that truth like, be real for you today as a Christian. It'll change your whole outlook on life. Everything that you look for to find satisfaction and goodness and provision and identity and purpose, listen, is found only in Christ. Everything else is just a shadow. It just points you to him. If the first covenant was faultless, there would be no need for a new one. For a new one. The only problem with the first covenant was the people, not God. The people failed to keep the covenant. And so God steps in, looks around, said, no one else, no one here, no one can do it. Y'all can't do it, you can't do it. Y'all can't, I'll do it myself. I myself will be their God and they shall be my people. We'll read in a minute. Every bit that was given to them was meant to lead them to long for this Jesus. I want to give you this because it's, I think it's worthwhile. Uh, Revelation chapter one. When you read Revelation chapter 1, if you don't know much about the Old Testament, <laughs> the book of Revelation will make even less sense to you than it probably already does. You need to know a little bit about the Old Testament. You need to know a little bit about the temple and how that, they designed the temple. Because when you read this in Revelation, it's using imagery of the temple to speak to who Jesus is on the throne. And so you have to have both. Revelation 1 would read and does read like this. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. This is John speaking. And on turning, I saw, it's all imagery from the temples, seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, Old Testament language, clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. Lo and behold, church, he's dressed like a priest sitting there. That's what the priests would have wore. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like the flame of fire, just like they would have fire in the Holy of Holies. His feet, like burnished bronze, just as they had bronze all throughout the temple, refined in a furnace. That means they were completely spotless. And his voice, like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face shone like the sun, shining, sun shining in full strength. Sorry, jumping ahead of myself. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength, just like Moses. Whenever Moses would go into the Holy of Holies and come out, his face would shine like these LEDs shine on me right now. When I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead, as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Even as we read that, like it's written to give us an anticipation. Our imaginations cannot fathom what we just read. You can Google, you can look up all the different things, and I'm telling you right now, it will not do justice for whenever we get there in the kingdom of God. Even in the book of Revelation, it is simply a shadow of the things to come, yes? And so there's this longing, this anticipation that should 
build in us. And as we read the Old Testament and read about the temple and we understand now because we have the gospel and we can look through the cross into the Old Testament, we can understand that Jesus is our high priest and Jesus is the better temple and all the gold that we can read about there, as beautiful as it was and as it is, will be far surpassed by the beauty of Christ and all the dimensions and all of its totality and all the things that go into the temple will be nothing. They will be viewed as nothing in comparison to what Christ will look like whenever he appears. He is the temple. He is the holy of holy. He is the day of atonement. He is the better. Fill in the blank with anything you know about the temple. The third thing then is this, a shadow of a promise. Hebrews 8, 6 through 7. This is probably like the best news I've heard in the last month of my life. Verse 6. But as it is, I'm going to read this again to you so the rest makes a little bit more sense. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as more, much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. That's an eternal promise. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for the second. Verse 8, for he finds fault with them, with the priest, with the temple, with the law. He finds fault with them when he says, and we'll pause there. And so what he's going to do, what the author is going to do here, is he's going to lay out the difference using the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31, to paint a picture of what has happened, what we've been set free from in regards to the old covenant and the new covenant. And so I'm going to give you another sub-point, since apparently I do this all the time and didn't realize it. The second sub-point is this. It's going to be hard to read, but I'll explain it. If this then has become, I will, if you want to write something down. What I mean by that is in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, what you have is, if you do this, then I will be your God. If you do this, then you will be my people. If you do this, then I will respond to you. If you do this, then I'll take you out of exile. If you do this, then I'll put you in exile. There's kind of this all based on legalism and works. And so what I want you to see and what I want you to know is that while the Old Testament was all the things I have said it was, it is simply a shadow still. And so the shadow has become not if this, then I will, but it has become I will, period. Right? Regardless of what you do, regardless of how you respond, for those of you that are in Christ, there is no more if this, then. There's only, I will. I will be their God and they will be my people. And the way that he, the author of Hebrews, pushes this point out is by using Jeremiah 31. And so verse 8 continues. He says, for he finds fault with them. Again, talking about the priests, the temple, the law, all of that. And then he quotes Jeremiah 31. He says this, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. He's writing this in the old covenant. I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And then he explains why. Here's what the first covenant did. Verse 9. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. You see that. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them. He's talking about if this, then, right? If they would have just done what I told them to do, then they would have been fine. If they would have just done that, they wouldn't have to live off manna. If they would have just done that, then I would have gave them the land of Cana. If they would have just done that, then, do you guys see that? 
And so this is what he's painting, this picture, this Old Testament language, this Old Covenant language. And then he transitions, though, from this if, this, then, and he says, there's only I will. This is the new covenant promise for those of us in Christ. If this then has been obliterated in the cross of Christ. My gosh, you know how liberating that is, church? Like that you don't have to try to save yourself or you don't have to put up some facade and act like someone more than you actually are. You don't have to get on all the forms of social media and try to paint yourself in some kind of perfect picture like your kids are better than everybody else's kids. That ain't true. We all got kids in here. They're all crazy. You don't have to act like your work life is perfect or your spousal life is perfect or your whatever, your studies are perfect. Do you know what that is? Ultimately what that is? That's an if, then, then, if, and if, whatever I said it was. And you can I'm saying? It's a legalistic mentality is what it is, right? If they will do this, then I will. That is living literally as a slave under the old covenant. I need to present myself a certain way. I need to look a certain way. I need you to think of me a certain way. If I do that, then they will what? Then they will love me. Then they will see me. Then they will delight in me. Then they will accept me. Then they will. And it turns out if the people of God have regularly rejected God, they'll also continue to reject you. And so set under his atoning work and his sacrifice, he says, I will, verse 10, I will. Not if this then, got it, I will, verse 10. For this is the covenant, okay, that I what? I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Verse 11, and they shall not teach each one of his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me. He's talking about the people of God now. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Verse 12, for what? I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Here's what's so crazy about this. I feel like 16 weeks and I finally like get to say this. Here's what's crazy about it. As he's quoting Jeremiah 31, I was sharing this with a team earlier. I don't even have it in my notes, so this is free. This is all free. He quotes Jeremiah 31. And, sorry, he's quoting Jeremiah, shh, quoting Jeremiah 31. What has happened is like uh, King Josiah has found the law in like a cave. He's like found it and he's like, mesmerized by the word of God. And he's like, this is what we should be leading by. This is how I should be leading the nation. The nation responds. They have a festival, a day of celebration and repentance. And then immediately the people stop following. No different than the rest of the Old Testament. In the midst of them now, knowing the law, having it fall afresh upon them, and then rebelling against God. In the midst of that, he writes verse 12, which is in Jeremiah 31, a little different. But verse 12, he says, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. What is so fascinating about that is that while the law in the Old Testament covenant was insufficient to bring salvation, God never looks at the Old Testament or looks at the Old Covenant and goes, I'm going to change it. Right? He doesn't go, hey, I understand you guys are having a hard time with keeping 10 of the commandments, so I'll just give you five. Let's see how you do then. Oh, the sacrificial system. Y'all jack that thing all up. You're bringing in your twitchy lambs. You're freaking, I said spotless, but like I, it's covered in manure. It's like not spotless. It's okay. We'll just do away with the sacrificial system. It's no big deal, right? We'll don't, don't worry about the day of atonement. It's no big deal. We, actually, it's a day of atonement. Instead of waiting a year, we'll give you two years of atonement. How about that? Then that'll be good for you. 
He doesn't change the law, okay? So what happens then? How, does he, how can he say that? For I will be merciful to their iniquities. In the midst of their sin, I will remember their sins no more. He doesn't do away with the law. He doesn't abolish the law. He doesn't transform the law. He doesn't change any of that. Rather, what God does in and through the person and work of Jesus is he changes his people. He says, hey, you can't conform. You can't do this. You can't find righteousness. I'll mediate for you. I'll be your perfect priest. I'll be your perfect king. I'm not going to change my word. The, the, Jesus says, I shall not abolish. I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. How does he fulfill the law? By writing it on our hearts, by putting it in our minds. He can't change the law, so what does he do? He changes his people. How? Through the work of Jesus. What does it mean for Jesus to mediate? That's what it means for him to mediate for you. Right? All day. We go along the day all day long, breaking the law of God. We don't even know the laws of God for crying out loud, right? If I were to take a poll on how many people could just start quoting Old Testament law, it's probably less than 4% of people in the room, if I had to guess, based off research. I wouldn't even know the law, let alone keep the law. How is it that one can continue going on sinning? How is it possible that we can continue walking forth, just shattering the laws that they would have been killed for? It was because there was a better Jew that was killed and his name is Jesus and it was sufficient to end all death. How is it that, that we can do it because there's a better high priest that stands in the temple that mediates for us and says, hey, in the midst of their sin, Father, you only see me. How is that possible? Because there's a perfect high king that stands above this and says, hey, I write the order of how this thing goes. I will not change my word, oh, but I will change you. And so the word itself puts on flesh, comes and dwells among us. Do you understand? Like the law of God puts on flesh. The Old Testament puts on Flesh, it matters. And then he puts it to death on the cross and they store it up somewhere in the temple in a closet. And he says, here's a whole new covenant for you, baby. Just find rest in me. Yeah, I am everything that you could ever desire, want, or need. I will make a new covenant. I will put my law in their hearts. I will put my law in their minds. I will be merciful and I will remember their sin no more. Where do you think conviction comes from? How do you know you're sinning unless you know the law? It's because the Holy Spirit has written the law in your heart. So whenever you experience conviction, it's because you're breaking the law. The law still matters. You just can't keep it. I can't keep it. So Jesus kept it for us. And in the midst of those moments, whenever confession comes, then we don't just go, oh, sorry, I broke the law like everyone else before me. We go, clearly this is a moment that reveals I need you. And so the shadow was good for them in the Old Testament, but you also need to hear me say, that shadow kind of stays in you right now. And anytime you need to come to a place of repentance, you don't have to go find a temple, you don't have to come here. Heaven forbid, you don't need me to preach. There's a great and perfect high priest that has placed his temple inside of you. You just go to him whenever you want. And you say, God, I need you. Just like we sing here most weeks out of the month, yeah? Why don't you all stand with me as we take communion together? Sixteen weeks. All that to say, we're going to take communion. Uh, without trying to confuse you in light of communion today, also want you to be able to think about. Uh, you can see Jesus as the perfect King and the perfect Priest, High Priest, even in communion today, as we take communion together. Without getting into all of it, uh, communion has come from the what's called the Passover. And Jesus here, he redeems the Passover. He says, hey, that, that son that was once passed over, I mean, that was just a shadow that was going to foreshadow 
that there's a son that death would most certainly not pass over, but would pass through so I can give you life. Here's actually what the Passover means. And as a king, church, he redeems it in that moment. In this moment right here, modeling perfect king, kingship. He's also then we get to see him be the perfect mediator because he's the one that comes. It's his blood that is spilled. It's his life that is lost so that we don't have to experience that. And so as I read this, as I read it most weeks, almost every week, I just want you to think about it with those two things in mind. 1 Corinthians 11 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So even as we come into communion, communion is just a shadow. It's just a, it's an opportunity to kind of create in us an anticipation for the better, for the better temple, for the better priest to be able to see him on his throne. He says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me and building this anticipation for us. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant. It's the new promise. It's in my blood. He's redeeming. He's remaking. He's forming a whole new, a whole new thing right here as king. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Saying, anticipate me. Look for me. Long for me. This moment is just a moment that's meant to give, be given to us so that we can create in us this longing for him. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And he is coming. And it'll be far better than some vacation that I can mention in the introduction of a sermon. It'll be eternal, as I was reminded just a moment ago by someone. An eternal place, an eternal holy of holies, an eternal king, an eternal priest. And so I would encourage you today, as you're sitting there, standing there, and if you feel conviction and that has come, the Spirit is prompting you and saying, hey, you've broken the law of God. You deserve death. But Jesus took your death. Communion is the reminder of that. So before you come forward, I would ask that you ask the Holy Spirit to say, God, where have I broken your law? Where have I not remained faithful? Where have I lost my edge, my anticipation? Where have I taken you for granted even? And just ask the Lord to speak to you in that moment, to mediate for you and remind you of Jesus' goodness. And then when you come up, church, just feast. Uh, Feast on the king, feast on that priest. Amen.